nice worshiping with everybody this this afternoon. Yes. You know, I often say, and I'll keep on saying it, I'm never uh, surprised at just how freeing worship is. You know, it really does get us out of ourselves and all the distractions we come in with. And we can be reminded of just how awesome God's love is towards us. And, you know, that he accepts us and he's working on our behalf. And uh, it's nice to know he hasn't forgot about us. Amen? Amen. I want to speak about the fruit of generosity. I'm going to spend uh, at least two weeks, maybe three weeks, speaking about this. The joyful self-discovery of generosity. That's the text. That's the story tonight we're going to read about. The joyful self-discovery. Not coercion. Not manipulation. Not guilt. A joyful self-discovery where we own personally the fruit of generosity. The Christian is a person that gives out of the abundance of what God has given them. It could be financial, it could be time, it could be energy, it could be prayer, it could be many things. I'll be specifically speaking about finances today, but it's, it's, but I want you to remember the story we're going to read tonight. The example that the Apostle Paul gives us is a joyful self-discovery of being generous because of what Christ has done for us. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I will read 15 verses. I will only comment on the first five verses today. Verse 1. Okay. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that was given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they have... For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for, the, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also desire to do it. So now finish doing it well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Let's stop there, let's pray. Father, we thank you, God that you encourage us with a readiness to 
give, Father God, the way Christ has given us, Father God. Continue to remind us and encourage us, Father God, of this joyful self-discovery given to you out of what you've given us. No compulsion, no guilt attached, no coercion, Father God, just a joyful obedience to you when it comes to meeting the needs of other people. In Jesus' name, amen. The fruit of generosity. I've been feeling this for a while to start teaching on what it means to be generous as Christians. Uh, The scriptures don't give a a detailed analysis, uh, a micromanaging of our finances. The, The Bible doesn't do that. In the Old Testament it goes a little more, but not the New Testament. It's simple, just give out of the abundance and the overflow of your heart. We're going to see that as the weeks go on. It's not a detailed analysis, a planned sort of uh, uh, approach to how you give to God. Though some preachers and some ministers out there and some Christian denominations will make it sound that way. I can assure you it's not from the scriptures. We're going to speak a little bit about that today. Namely, financial generous Christianity is the fruit of of genuine Christian experience. That's what we read about tonight. It's an experience that this church in, 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 in Macedonia, it, this is uh, the book of Philippians and First and Second Thessalonians, they just had this ex- great experience with Christ. And their heart was immediately opened to the needs of other people. It was a joyful, spontaneous self-discovery that God had put something in them that made them want to help. And as a pastor, I know that. As a Christian, I know that. I know that from the moment I got saved. But I want others to know that. Paul is writing that others may know that. They, They generally may know This joyful, spontaneous self-discovery of feeling like God. It's called this grace. It almost feels like you're being gracious like God is. Paul here at times, this, this teaching, though it's spontaneous, it's a Christian experience. Many times it needs to be encouraged, it needs to be taught, it needs to be reminded. And that's what Paul is doing tonight. He's reminding the Corinthians, you made a pledge. Fulfill it. Not out of obligation, but out of faithfulness to God. I want to address some concerns and issues about financial support, uh, whether it's the local Christian community or other ministries. And we can start with some questions. How should ministries teach God's people to give? How should we do that? Of course, it should be biblical. How often should we give? How much should we give? Do we teach that believers have to give to the home church or is it okay for believers to give to other ministries? And what about the question of tithing? This 10% requirement in the Old Testament, is it a minimum or is it a maximum? And even a greater question, is this tithing commandment relevant for the New Testament church? 
In many ways, the Bible remains frustratingly vague on these areas. When it comes to our most pressing questions about the stewardship of our finances and and the generosity of our hearts. And this may explain why there's so much bad teaching and preaching about it. And there's a lot of confusion in the Christian church. You know, I will give you what we believe in this church when it comes to giving in a moment. But C.S. Lewis, the great Christian writer and apologist, wrote this when it came to giving. It's, it, it, it's, it's a short, terse understanding, but it really captures this joyful, spontaneous self-discovery of giving. He says this. I am afraid that the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. If our giving habits do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say then they are too small. There ought to be things we want to do but cannot because our giving expenditures exclude them. There comes a time when the Christian knows what it means to give where it hurts. Where we have to give and and do without something because we got this joyful, spontaneous self-discovery that I want to give. Not out of what I want to give, but just to give, period. Because there's a need to be met. And this definition that we just read is not just good, it's really good. It exemplifies a godly attitude towards the stewardship of money and being generous as believers. Sadly, what the human nature is really after is what is the least I can give while still honoring God. That's human nature. You know, it's like this, this sort of uh, cost-effective analysis. You know, you know, can I give a little less and a little less? And it, 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 it's bad. This is human nature. Human nature needs to be prodded and needs to be reminded. And, you know, it's, and, and, and what we have, we're getting further and further and further away from what the gospel is all about. I believe our text tonight shows us the right way to approach financial support from Christians. And I say the right way because Paul is not emotional. There's not an emotional appeal to give. You have to give. Doesn't do it. Nor is it a guilt trip for not giving. Nor is it some power trip for those who give above and beyond. That's all absent in our text. Or some false promise that if you give, you'll get. You give, you sow your seed, and God sees that. You don't see any of that in Paul's teaching. You don't see it in the New Testament. It's not there. But Paul teaches the natural outgrowth of a properly based faith in Christ. He speaks to the born-again conscience. That's what he does. He lays it at the foot of a conscience of a soul that's been redeemed by Christ. And he allows them to know for themselves, to experience the joyful, spontaneous generosity that takes place. He allows them to do it. He puts no numbers out there. He puts no percentages out there. It's beautiful. 
He allows God to speak to the conscience and, and let each believer to know. I remember when me and my wife got saved, we came in and, and we would give a couple of dollars. And one day she goes, how much is like after like six weeks? She goes, how much did you give? I said, $20. She said, what? <laughs> that took us 27 years ago. That's a lot of money, $20. And we were, I was like, I know, but it felt good. <laughs> I'm so personally happy. That God taught me the spontaneous and joyful self-discovery of giving. And that first time, the 20 was beautiful. And needless to say, it's not about me. It's about Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. But the point is, there's a right way of doing this. It's not about false promises. It's theological in essence. What Paul is saying here, giving is tied to God and what he has done in Christ and what he has given us. That is what giving is based on. It's between the believer and his God. The text is a great approach to understanding giving. And I want to pay close attention to it. Really Pay close attention to it. I want to speak about what this church believes about tithing. If you're not familiar with the law of tithing, the commandment in the Old Testament that in Israel I had to give 10% of whatever they had in that year, whether it was crops, whether it was oil, whether it was uh, every tenth sheep or goat, whatever it might have been. And that was for the, the, it was legislation that promoted a healthy priesthood. It was there for a reason. It was to take care of the priesthood, take care of the temple, take care of the orphan, take care of the widow, and take care of the poor alien amongst God's people. That's what it was there for. It wasn't there for anybody to get rich on. As a matter of fact, there was nothing ever left over. There was just enough that made it out, and everybody was satisfied. But it was obedience. Today, many people will say, well, you have to tithe. It's a New Testament command. They'll go into the Old Testament... And a couple of New Testament verses that say you need to you need to tithe. I want you to know we don't believe that, but that doesn't let anybody off the hook. So don't rejoice, okay? The point is this: Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Period. You cannot get any brownie points with God for giving anything. It does nothing for you. It does nothing for me. Jesus Christ paid. The debt for everything. It is not up and operating at all in a believer's life. The have to, the command, you, you have to give. It's not an obligation. But it's very good advice. Because that's what God is doing in our heart all the time. He's giving, he's giving, he's giving. So giving is a natural outflow of what Christ has done for us. We don't believe that anyone is under the commandment that you have to tithe. But I'll tell you as a pastor, you'd be crazy not to. I'll tell you right now. You'd be crazy not to give to God. And to understand the, 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 the spontaneous, joyful freedom of giving. But that's all. If it's a commandment, I would tell you. The Bible says, commands and forbids sexual immorality. I will sit here and proclaim from the bottom of my heart, abstain from sexual immorality. It is a commandment. But I can't tell you that about giving. But I will encourage you what Paul is doing here. We encourage, and I think you're crazy if you don't go to the Lord and say, Lord, this belongs to you. 
That's between you and God. It's a commitment. It's not a commandment. It's something we encourage, but we cannot and we will not demand it because when we demand it, I am diminishing the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that alone procures your salvation and your right standing and justification before God. If I was to sit here and command you to give 10%, I would be trashing the blood of Jesus Christ as the only means that makes someone right with God. And why God blesses us is not because we give, it's because God gave, and guess what? He continues to give, and He continues to give, and He continues to give. That is our approach to tithing. But that doesn't mean we don't give. But it takes to have to. Now please hear this about giving. What Jesus Christ did, he took the have to out. And he replaces it with a joyful, spontaneous want to. And that's what Paul's getting here. That's what as a pastor, we want to encourage you. Whether you've experienced that or not now or yet, I pray you experience it somewhere in your Christian life. That you know this joyful, spontaneous, want to give on to the Lord. Let's go to what text. It's not about law, it's about the motives of the heart. It's love, not law. Verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace God about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Paul's approach to the question of giving starts with an example of others. And as a matter of fact, it's a good starting place because what we're going to see here is the proper response to God's grace. God is the foundation to all our understanding on how we are to give. He is the great example. Giving and generosity has to be drenched in God's grace and God's love. So much so that Paul says, if a man were to sell all his possessions and give them away, but he has not love, he's what? He's nothing. He's a sounding gong and a brassy cymbal. It benefits him nothing at all. God's grace is the great Inertia that moves our heart to do anything. It's interesting what Paul says here about the grace of God. He says, I I want you to know, brothers. Other times he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, about the grace of God that was given amongst the churches of Macedonia. You see, he doesn't say, I don't want you. Let me tell you about the money the Macedonian church gave. He doesn't say that. And he's right to not say that. He calls it something much greater than money. He says he calls it the grace of God. Giving to meet needs. It's the grace of God. It's an extension of the grace of God. It is about the grace of God on the hearts of the Macedonian church that's giving. And what's important about this is the staggering background. This gift is, is, is mesmerized when we see in verse 2, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity 
on their part. These churches in Macedonia were persecuted severely for their Christian faith. Severe affliction. Persecuted harshly because of their faith in Christ. They were hunted down for their faith in Christ. And if that wasn't bad enough, that would get somebody to say, you know something, I can't worry about the collection. I'm being persecuted. But to go beyond that, if that wasn't enough, they were desperately poor people. He uses the, 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 the word extreme poverty. I mean, poverty says a lot, doesn't it? But he goes further and he calls it extreme poverty. The word extreme means deep. And it's usually used when, it, when the, the, the roots of a tree go deep. And it's talking about how these churches were always poor. As a matter of fact, all they ever knew was poverty. That's all they know. That's how deep it is. That's how extreme it is. Abject poverty. They don't know anything else but poverty. Do you know what James says about the poor? That God chose the poor in the world to be rich in faith. That's God's currency. To be rich and God does his greatest work amongst the poor. I play golf, play at this club, and very few people I play with want to hear much about Jesus. It doesn't stop me, but I get in there. But then we're driving around, and I see the workers, all the Spanish, Mexican workers. Hallelujah! Jesus Christos te ama. And we speak, and I speak to him about Christ, and we get together and we pray. It's the poor. Speak to the poor about Jesus and watch what happens. I go into the kitchen, the kitchen staff gets together. Guess what we do? We pray. I can't do that outside. Nobody wants to hear that. Not that I wouldn't be willing, but there's no opening. But you get around the poor. And they want to hear about Jesus. I love it. I love it. God does his greatest work around there. And so we got these people. They're persecuted on one side. They got extreme poverty. That's all they've ever known from the, from the cradle to the grave. That's all, we ever know, that's all they ever knew. But yet, even in this extreme poverty and this affliction, something overcame it all. It's called this abundance of joy. Even though they had nothing, they found something to meet the needs of others. This is incredible. Even extreme poverty and persecution could not stop the great joy they had in Jesus. Jesus trumps persecution and Jesus trumps poverty. When you have Christ, you are rich. Jesus says that to the church in in Revelations. You think you are poor, but I say that you're rich. We live in America. And America judges success in life by what? What you have. What you have. 
reading a great book on uh, developmental psychology, moral psychology. This is what I do on my time off, okay? And what it's saying that in the course of a man's life or a woman's life, success is everything. It drives the person to be successful. It's a good drive because many people become. But what happens as age sets in and people start turning into their later 40s and mid-50s, it's called the midlife crisis, and they, 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 they try to capture the glory one more time. But by the time they get into their 60s, they realize these materialistic things, guess what? They're looking for a home in the country to spend quietly with their loved ones and it's fellowship, it's relationship that counts. You see, all the intangibles that we can have for nothing, that's always been there, they're usually the last thing to capture our heart. But as Christians, we know that already. Even though they had nothing, this church or these churches found something to meet the needs of others. This is incredible. This abundant joy overcomes the poverty mindset. You couldn't tell them, you know, son, why are you so happy for? You're poor. They're like, we're not poor. We have Jesus. We were poor. But now we're not poor no more. They're so fixated on Jesus that they did not see what they did not have. Does that fit in the American mindset today? To be so fixated on the love of God that you can't see what you don't have. All you're intoxicated with is what you do have. This wealth of generosity that's overflowing. There's something special here because this is coming from a poor church. An afflicted church. There's a certain sweetness when you see the poor given to God. There's a certain sweetness to it. There's a certain sweetness when, when Jesus was looking at the temple and he was looking over the money and, 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 and the poor widow gave her two mites. There was something sweet. He, he said she gave more out of her poverty than everybody else gave out of their wealth. God can do more with what the little the, the poor give than all the money of the wealthy. First of all, God doesn't need anybody's money. Let's get that straight. It all belongs to him anyway. What happens in many people's hearts and they don't realize it, what we could end up giving to God is just the leftovers after we've enjoyed everything. What's left over this week? Let me see what I can afford to give. What's, what, as C.S. Lewis says, there's, there's no skin in the game. There's no like giving till it hurts. Uh, there's no percentage involved. There's just extreme giving. He goes on to say in verse 3, For they gave according to their means. This is beautiful. Paul, there's no pressure here by Paul. He didn't say you had to give this much. According to their means, that's all. He goes, I can testify to this. And not just that, but beyond their means. Of their own accord, no coercion whatsoever. Verse 3 qualifies the quantity. Not the Old Testament doesn't qualify the quantity. The context qualifies the quantity. They gave according to their own means. 
And for some people, they went the extra mile, according and beyond what they could give. Somehow these people's lives were disrupted by giving. Somehow. They didn't give over the leftovers. They didn't say, well, you know something, uh, I'm going to spend A, B, and C on this and we'll see what we have over. They gave accordingly and even above. These poor people gave more than they really had, but they were so overabundance with joy for Christ and there was a need in Jerusalem for the saints over there that they denied themselves of any luxury even in their poverty, in their affliction, and they met the need of someone they never even seen before. Ever. They were given to Jews. These were Gentiles. 2,000 miles away. But they gave because they knew the spontaneous, joyful self-discovery of meeting other people's needs in the name of Jesus. They gave according to their means. They did not give according to what I told them. According to their means. Paul just laid out the necessity, the need. And God did all the rest. Beautiful. He goes on to say they did it at their own accord. Verse 4 says, begging us earnestly for the favor. He calls it the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Where verse 3 qualifies the quantity. Verse 4 qualifies uh, the quality. The quality of the giving. Listen, no pretense. No coercion. No lies, no promises, no guilt trip. The sweetness, the quality of their giving out of their own accord, whatever it was, a dollar to make no difference to Paul. They gave. And they gave abundantly out of their poverty. What a quality of giving. Witnessing to a man for the longest time, man of means, and one day, out of some kind of guilt trip, I think, he offered a lot of money to the ministry. When you offer a pastor a lot of money to the ministry, you would think that's like, oh, yeah, sure. But I stepped back and I said, well, why are you giving that? He really didn't have a good reason to give it. He, he hummed in the hall because I just, I feel like, I said, I'll tell you what. Wait a month. Let me know how you feel. I never saw the guy again. I saw him a while ago and never offered it. But the point was, he wasn't giving it from the heart. And I knew that. And God doesn't need that money. I was more concerned about him and his salvation, not the check he wanted to give. That's, and that's what Paul did. Not about the money. It's about the soul. It's about the person. There's no coercion here. He says they're begging earnestly for the favor. That means the grace. No burden here. No pulling of the teeth. It's all spontaneous. It's all joyful. It's all self-discovery. A need was met. And he, they just want to jump in. They don't care about denying themselves. They're going to give above and beyond. Even though they're poor. They don't have a poverty mentality that stops them from giving. They're so overflowing with the joy of their personal salvation. That they just want to meet anybody's need. This is a congregation. 
where the gospel of grace went deeper into their hearts than the extreme poverty went into their lives. They wouldn't allow poverty to dictate to them meeting the need of another person. It's called, they, they earnestly begged us for this grace. What a congregation. What a work of grace by the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 5, And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. This great display of generosity from the most unsuspecting people, please listen, even caught Paul by surprise. He was like, all right, if you want to. This is, as he says here, not as we expected, as we hoped. They went above and beyond. Paul was blown away. This is the apostle. This great display of generosity from these unsuspecting people got Paul to gasp for a moment. And this is why Paul in verse 1 doesn't say they gave money. He calls their giving this grace of God. Because Paul could see that only God could possibly move a heart to give out of the abundance of their poverty. Paul had to step back and say, this is the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, when they had to build the temple... Moses gave the decree to give to God. They gave so much money that Moses had to say, stop giving. No coercion. As God moved upon their hearts, the scriptures teach us. Too much coercion goes on in the Christian life. Too much coercion, too much manipulating, too much guilt, too much shame. You go to some churches, you feel like, you know, are you, are you part of the haves or the have-nots? Are you, are you part of this? Are you part of that percentage? And, I mean, so much so. I mean, me and John make it a point in this ministry. We know nothing about who gives and who does not give anything. We don't want anything to do with that. I want to preach and I want to love every saint and meet them where they're at. I never ever want to be tainted by the thought of who's given too much or who's not given enough. Never ever we want nothing to do with that. Because we're human. He calls it this grace of God. This sweet aroma to God. These, these extreme poverty stricken afflicted Christians who were saved only a couple of years. Find it this overwhelming abundance of joy in their heart to give into this grace. I ask you this. How do you see another person's affliction? How do you see someone else's need? Do you see it as a grace? Or do you see it as a burden? You see, the Macedonians didn't see it as a burden. They saw it as a grace. An opportunity to meet other people's needs. See, only a true evaluation of God's grace 
for someone's life can ever explain this kind of kingdom given. Only a proper understanding. This given of this generous gift, or I should say, let me back up, Paul quickly qualifies this. He says this. He says, first they gave themselves to the Lord. First they gave themselves to the Lord. Don't miss this. See, Paul doesn't care about money and finances. Paul Paul cares about people. And the only thing that counts is if people give themselves to what? The Lord. That man that wanted to give me a lot of money for the church, guess what he did? What he didn't do yet? He, and I didn't want to get in his way by taking his money. I'm more concerned about his soul and coming to the Lord first so he can experience, and maybe one day he will experience, the spontaneous, joyful self-understanding of giving generously to the Lord. I want him to experience that. Paul allowed them to experience this. No coercion. No manipulation. They gave themselves first to the Lord. You know what that means? Let's read First Thessalonians. I didn't put it up there, but please follow with me, okay? Paul wrote to this church, this Macedonian church, and this is what he said. For we know, brothers of Macedonia, who are loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and full conviction. Understand something. They gave themselves wholeheartedly to Jesus when Paul preached. They were so enamored by the Christ that hung on the cross and died personally for their sins. They were so fixated on the great joy of their personal salvation that their names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life, that their shame was taken away. Years of guilt were taken away. Their heart was so opened up that the joy of giving meant nothing to them. It was an act of grace. Let me tell you something about Paul. This is a preacher that had his priorities straight. This is a preacher. This is an apostle who had his priorities right. He was more concerned for the soul of the person than the budget of the church. This is what the church needs. This is the kind of giving. God can do so much more with less when it's given from the right heart. God can do so much more with monies that were given from people who have given themselves first to God than all the money in the world. This is a preacher that truly had his priorities right. But then he goes on to say, they give himself to God first and then to his servant. And this is what Paul says. They were so committed to Christ. They were so joyful about their personal salvation. They gave themselves instantaneously to God. They repented of their sins. And they heard that I'm their servant. I'm the servant of God. They came to me with no suspicion. They recognize the legitimacy of my ministry. They recognize the legitimacy of my call as an apostle. And they recognized the legitimacy 
to encourage them to give according to their ability. That's all. They receive Christ. They receive God first. Then they can receive Paul as the messenger of Christ and the message that Paul brings. This is beautiful. See, Paul is just speaking to the heart. When, when I get up, when John preaches, when someone comes to preach, we lay it at the foot of the conscience of the Christian. As a pastor, I want every Christian to know the self-discovery, joyful, spontaneous act of generosity. I can never compel you into this joy. I can, never, I can never demand it or command it. It's something that you experience in your life. And it's not just about giving to the local church. It's about giving wherever you are. Wherever you are. A couple applications. As I said, I can only get into five verses. I encourage you to go home and read chapter 8 and 9. I'm going to spend some time on it. Not much, but some time. It says a lot more about this. But the first thing I want to speak about is, as I, it, it, that strikes me, and I, I mentioned it already, is the absence of any kind of manipulating rhetoric. Sort of like, you know, if you clean the room, you got your allowance. There's none of that going on over here. You know, it's just a loving, pastoral, Shepherding appeal to the conscience of the believer based on what Christ has done. That's it. There's no heavy push. There's no guilt trip. Just a presentation of the gospel and all its facts. That's all. And he gives an example. I want you to know this example of the Macedonians challenges me today. 2,000 years later, this message, these first five verses should challenge everybody in this room. Two, second example, second uh, application. What's on display here is not so much the Macedonians' faith and obedience. Paul would never elevate a man. Paul will never elevate a church over another church. What's on display here is God's grace in action. When Paul saw these poverty-stricken Macedonians persecuted church giving, he was in awe of God's grace in their heart. And we share often around here, and there's no greater joy in my life than to watch God's operation in someone else's life. I don't care. What it is. That's all I want. I don't care. Sometimes it's the joy of giving, and sometimes I'm watching a saint cry out because they need more forgiveness. They, they've blown it again. They're like, God can't love me. It's impossible for him to love me. And I, I've done it again. And pastor, and, 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 see, that's sweet because that's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's the gift of repentance. Does he forgive me? You better believe he forgives you. And I got a whole Bible that declares he forgives you. What's on display here is not the Macedonians, but God's grace and action in their hearts. That's what's on display. And this is the proper motivation. It's understanding. It's not law. Law doesn't come by way of uh, understanding. Law comes by way of pure commandment. Understanding comes by another, uh, reflecting what Christ has done, 
Macedonian church reflected on what Christ has done for them, and they more than wanted to meet any challenge that came their way. Last one. Just take a moment to speak on America's fascination with a poverty mentality. Okay? We've got to be very careful as Christians in America to get caught up in a sort of uh, a keeping up with the Joneses or I've got a poverty mentality. Uh, I can't give because, you know, I don't have enough. That's not an excuse. And it's not about giving all you have. It's about giving something for the God, for the Lord. God and Christianity. We need to be careful that it doesn't become what can God do for me in my American dream. See, the Macedonians weren't saying, "Well, you know, wait, Paul. You know, listen, man. I, I've been poor all my life, and now I got to meet someone else's needs." Well, whoa, 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 whoa! Meet my needs. See, that's a poverty mentality. And a poverty mentality will eventually squelch all the joy of your salvation. If I think according to those lines, I'll never be happy. I'll never give anything. I'll never rejoice in my salvation. I'm too thinking I'm poor. Extreme poverty. But you want to know something about this? Many people can lose the joy of their salvation. If you're going to try to hold on to the joy of your salvation and live up to a certain standard in life and not meet that standard, you'll be miserable. We learn to give out of joyful hearts. Period. Even in extreme poverty, we learn to give according to what we can give. Period. That's all Paul says. Let me just close with this. Over the years, I really have seen that the poor, genuinely poor people are some of the most generous Christians I've ever seen. They never complain. Whatever it is they give, and they give it on to the Lord. It is sweet. But for others who aren't genuinely poor, but just aren't living the lifestyle they want, sometimes they have a hard time giving. Because they're more concerned with the lifestyle they're trying to meet as opposed to giving to God who saved them. The joy of their salvation is gone. It's become a business deal. It's a cost-effective analysis. You know, I can't afford to do this. They have no idea what C.S. Lewis says, that when you give sometimes, the best understanding is that sometimes it hurts. That's when you know you're giving from the right motive. And it's sweet. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to give. I thank you, Father God, for the opportunity to preach this wonderful message, Father God, that this is what the gospel does. When the gospel is properly applied to our life, Father God, and we know that Jesus, who was rich in heaven, he became poor as a human and suffered at the cross as a criminal, so that we who are truly poor and dead in sins and transgressions could be rich in eternal life and reward. God, 
Help us to understand if that doesn't move our hearts to generosity, nothing ever will. That everything we do for you, God, when we give to you, is done out of solely what Christ has done for us and nothing else, God. God, let your people never give out of coercion or out of guilt or out of manipulation, Father God. Let your people simply give with childlike faith to you who saved them from their sins. In Jesus' name.